Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And it reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. As you may recall, last week, Pastor Dan preached Psalm 1, which can be categorized more as a wisdom psalm. Psalm 2, on the other hand, is more of a royal psalm, and some would say a psalm of coronation. In the immediate view of this psalm is David, King David, a man who was said to be after God's own heart. The king that God himself chose and anointed. One that was not like the kings of the nations, but one that was to fear the Lord by keeping his commandments and statutes and doing them, as we learned in Deuteronomy 17. In fact, the king was to write for himself a copy of God's law, and he was to read it all the days of his life, meditating on it, submitting to it, and rejoicing in it. Now, those of you who are astute listeners might recognize some echoes of that in Psalm 1, where we find that blessed is the man, or the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are a pair. They're connected, a couple, if you will. They can't really be separated from one another because as we look at it, we see that the anointed of God, he is who is to reign as king, must first have wisdom. We hear that when we see Solomon 
at the temple praying after he's been anointed king. And he's saying, Lord, grant me wisdom and understanding because who knows how to rule your people. And at the beginning of that wisdom is reverent fear of the Lord. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, says the proverb. So where does this reverent fear come from? Where else? But the word of God, the word that the king is to meditate on day and night, God's law, the very thing that is to be the king's delight, the object of his meditation. You see, in Psalm 1, we have a magnifying glass, telescope. We're zoomed in. We get the view of the micro, the individual. Yet in Psalm 2, we zoom out. And it shows us the same truth that occurs on the micro scale also occurs on the macro scale. And the Beatitudes that sandwich these two Psalms really paints the picture crystal clear. In Psalm 1-1, we read, blessed is the man. And then in Psalm 2-12, we read, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's not difficult to discern that David and his sons came nowhere near fulfilling all that is spoken of the king in Psalm 2. But the greater son of David the one whom David himself called Lord. Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Christ, he fulfilled it all perfectly. But the sinners, the scoffers, the wicked that are mentioned in Psalm 1, they make a guest appearance in Psalm 2 as well. So as we approach Psalm 2, we find that it's broken into four movements or stanzas. The first movement is found in verses 1 through 3, and it shows us the rebellion of man. The individuals identified as sinners, scoffers, and wickeds are now gathered together as nations and people groups. Not only that, but they're led by their kings and their rulers. And their rage is not some inward feeling hidden from public view. But it's this outward manifestation because of its hate. Toward a common enemy. Sadly, that common enemy that they rage against is the very God whose image they were created in. Why do the nations rage? The psalm opens up. That question, though rhetorical, is asked in astonishment, in horror. The psalmist is downright indignant. Why? Why do the nations rage? Not just the Gentiles, but all of the peoples. All the tribes of the earth, even those who call themselves part of the covenant community of God are raging. 
all around us, even today. We see the fallen nature of humankind played out in living color 24 hours a day. We see it on a television screen, over the radio waves, in every city, every state, country, nation, all across this globe, we see the fallenness of man. And we'd be grossly in error if we dared to think it only started a few years ago. No, man has been in rebellion against God from the very beginning. Made in his image. Positioned just a little lower than the angels. Blessed by God, given dominion over all of the earth. Placed in a paradise. Provided for. Beyond measure, everything man could ever want or need was at his fingertips, given to him by God. And God even protects man. He says, eat. Eat of any tree. Any fruit, whatever you desire. But this one, not this one. For this one, this fruit brings death. This fruit brings destruction. This fruit brings suffering. And not just to you, but to all that you Stand above all that you represent. Did God really say three words that turned it all upside down? Four words, rather, that questioned the very character of God. Did God really say? You will not die. You'll be just like God. The very desires of the heart being made known. Why would God restrict me in this way? Why would he keep something so precious, so desirable from me? Can he be trusted at all? Here's an opportunity for me. To not just have it all, but to be God himself. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The Hebrew word for plot is the same word translated in Psalm 1 as meditate. There it speaks of those who think about the Lord and meditate on his words in order to submit to him and delight in him. But here it speaks of those who plan, who plot, who conspire to rebel against him. 
Proverbs 24, 2, speaking of these rebels, says that their hearts devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. Over the years, it's been dressed up and disguised as many things. Rulings handled down, handed down from high courts, laws passed by elected officials, perversions of the most basic and obvious of truths, removal of any semblance of God from public view. And even within professing Christianity, loading people with burdens too hard to bear when they themselves wouldn't so much as touch it with a finger, says Jesus. And to paraphrase him in Matthew 23, 15, they'll travel all across land and sea to make one convert. And when that person does convert, they make him twice as much a child of hell as they are. In the words of one commentator, there's a conspiracy afoot. And the goal of this conspiracy is complete autonomy, liberation from God's authority. And that means also from the authority of his anointed, his appointed king, his Messiah, Christ Jesus. That's what these words mean in verse three when they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're speaking as if the word of God is some burdensome yoke. As if they're oxen being made to plow the fields nonstop over and over. As if his law and his commands are some chains and ropes binding them as slaves. Imposing upon them a lifetime of servitude. And in their minds, they seek to be freed, liberated from this yoke of bondage from the restraints placed upon them by this God and his anointed. But in reality, they seek to cast off God's restraining grace that keeps them from death and destruction. Much like our parents in the garden, rather than partaking of that tree of life, that was there all along, provided for them, inviting them to eat rather than partaking of that tree of life and feeding on God's word and his will. Life is cast aside in the hope of attaining something their darkened hearts think so much greater. In verses four through six, we get a glimpse of the response of God. The scene shifts drastically from the earthly rulers and their arrogant words now to God's throne room in heaven. And not only do we see God seated on his throne, but we also see the terror of his words. Verse four reads, he who sits in the heavens 
laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. We have these scoffers, these kings of the earth seated on their earthly thrones. And we have God, creator of the universe, enthroned in heaven. Could the contrast be any more striking than that? Could man look any more minuscule than that picture? You, O oh arrogant man, have a throne upon the earth. But the God you rebel against has his throne in all of heaven. And that entire earth that you just walk on, Scripture tells us that it's its footstool. His exalted position and his sovereign authority over the earth is apparent. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying God's power remains intact, unimpaired. Whatever men may attempt against it has no effect. No matter how lofty their goals, no matter how they exalt themselves, they will never be able to reach heaven. It's too big a hill to climb. God is so much more transcendent. Charles Spurgeon points out the quiet dignity of the omnipotent God. And the contempt he pours upon the kings, rulers and raging people. God does not trouble himself one bit to rise up from his throne to do battle. Rather, he simply sits, despises them. He knows how absurd, how irrational and how futile the efforts of sinful man is. Their attempts are in vain. And so he sits enthroned in heaven and laughs. He laughs because he does not need great armies to suppress the rebellion of the wicked. God can silence them as often and as easily as he pleases. He laughs so that we might understand that when he does allow these uprisings of rebellion, when seemingly the wicked are troubling his anointed and his people, it's not that he's too preoccupied to do something about it. No, it's not as though he's got other things to do and is just distracted. It's certainly not that he's too limited in his power to provide any assistance, but he purposely delays his wrath until the proper time. As Paul says in Romans 2.5, because of their hard and impenitent heart, they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
And Peter echoes this when he says, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them in the hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, don't take the Lord's patience as weakness. But when that appointed time does come, Oh, how terrifying a day it'll be. Verse five says, then on that day, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The speaking is none other than God's wrath made manifest. You see, it becomes very plain that the only laughing matter in all of this is man's arrogance itself not the suffering that it would cause. Let's not forget who God's anointed is. The saints in the apostolic church proclaimed for truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, those are kings and rulers, by the way, along with the Gentiles, nations and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And Peter at Pentecost proclaimed this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This same Jesus God's anointed, God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. Why are the nations, why are the peoples, the kings and the rulers, why are they terrified? Because God emphatically says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Though you have done these things, I have raised him up. The same Jesus, my anointed the same Jesus that you rejected, the same Jesus that you continually rebel against, the one you thought was dead and gone, crucified, murdered. God set him as king. How terrifying is that? 
seeing all your sins brought to bear as you gaze upon the king that you thought was dead and gone. And yet his rule has proved to be everlasting. The third movement in the psalm is found in verses 7 through 9. In it, we learn of the reign of God's anointed. Tracking through, we've heard of the rebellious ramblings of the wicked. We've heard God's wrath manifest in his speech. And now Jesus himself, the anointed of God, comes forward as the risen redeemer and king. And he speaks. In verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. No doubt this decree refers to the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord says, I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. In the Gospels, we see this beautifully proclaimed first that is baptism. Talked about that today in the catechism. The father announces, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Not only that, but he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, this picture should be viewed not as some one time thing. Right? Here's a, a drop of oil but a perpetual anointing. When we look at it, the Greek implies that the spirit not only descended, but continued to descend on Jesus. As though you were pouring oil on the head of Christ without a single, single drop ever being spilled. Imagine running water from a hose into a pitcher. Not a single drop wasted, and the pitcher never overflows. And that water continues and continues to pour out and remain on Christ. What an anointing. What an anointing that is. And again, we see at his transfiguration that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Moses and Elijah ministers to him and the father audibly proclaims, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But how are we to understand this today? I've begotten you. How do we understand that phrase? The word today marks the moment the new sovereign king formally takes up his inheritance and his titles. When we think of Jesus, though he was anointed by the spirit at his baptism and though he was declared the son at that time and also at the transfiguration, there was not a revealing of this to the masses. At the baptism, the only one who 
saw based on the text is Jesus. And at the transfiguration, we have Jesus, Peter, James and John. In other words, this was a particular revelation rather than a general revelation. Also, we see that he has not yet at those times taken possession of his inheritance. Now, if we think back to King David, we realize that his anointing kind of shadows this. Though he was anointed as a child to be king over Israel, no one knew. But Samuel, that was kept secret. Even his own family members did not know he had been anointed king when he was out in the field tending to his father's sheep. He too did not take possession of the title of king or the inheritance of the land and the people until the appointed time. So when was this appointed time for Christ? According to Paul in Romans 1.4, Christ was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Nowhere in this or nowhere is this made more clear than at the time of his ascension when the gathered disciples received the great commission and Jesus proclaims all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it is at the resurrection that the son was begotten. But we have to be careful not to think of Christ being begotten meaning that he began at that point to be the son of God. The proper understanding is that his being begotten means that his identity as the son of God was now being made manifest to the world. So when we think back about King David and the hiddenness of his anointing as king, and then that appointed time approaching and that being revealed, to the nations. Likewise, we can think of Christ. Though anointed at his baptism and called son of God there and at the transfiguration, it was not revealed to all that he was king, that he was son of God until his resurrection. Paul explains this in Acts 13 when he says, we bring you the good news that what was promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what was once particular and hidden has now been broadcast to the whole world. In verse 8, we read, ask of me and I will make the ends of the earth your possession." Now, in Scripture, specifically in the book of Esther and, and also in Matthew, we see that it's a custom among great kings to give to favored ones whatever they might ask. And though we find in John 17, 5, that Christ did ask to be uh, glorified with the same glory that he once had in the presence of the Father before the world existed, 
that the more obvious meaning here is that the father will deny nothing to the son, which relates to the extension of his kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. What's unique here is that Christ, though the eternal word of God has always had in his hands by right, sovereign authority and majesty. Still, he is exalted in his human nature. The very nature in which he took upon himself the form of a servant. So this title of son and king is not applied to him as God only, but is extended to the whole person of Christ. Paul tells us that after Christ had emptied himself, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What's interesting here about verse eight is that the heritage that Jesus asks of the father, that heritage are the very peoples and nations, kings and rulers who conspired against him and certainly continue to conspire. And it is to this heritage that Christ himself has received that he sends his disciples, his envoy, his messengers. He says, go to the nations. Once again, at the Grace Commission, Great Commission, having received all authority in heaven and earth, Jesus commands his followers to disciple the nations and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it's in this obedient work of evangelizing, of preaching the good news, proclaiming that Christ himself is Lord and King of all earth. that he gathers his lost sheep and collects the remnant of his people. But. He also rules with a rod of iron. Displaying his strength and his power, and the futility of rebellion. Verse 9 reads, you, speaking of the son, the anointed king, you shall break them, the very heritage that you asked for, the very nations and peoples that have rebelled, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. If nothing else, this verse tells us that Christ has both power to reign even over those who resist his authority and refuse to obey. Though many remain stiff-necked, rebellious, Christ, who needs neither sword nor spear, can by the breath of his mouth smite the ungodly. Even in final judgment. No nation, no people group, no earthly ruler or authority can stand. And though at times it may seem that the church is the fragile potter's vessel, 
We're to wait patiently, resting satisfied that our Lord, our King, our Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. Lastly, in verses 10 through 12, we learn of the refuge for his people. Verse 10 reads, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, knowing what you know now, that the very God you sought to be freed from and his anointed that you sought to kill remain in power, unfazed, enthroned in heaven and established as ruler of all creation. What will you do? This command to be wise and be warned reminds me of Moses' warning in Deuteronomy 30. He says, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that God may bless you. But if your hearts turn away and you will not obey, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And Elijah likewise pleaded with the people saying, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then worship him. Follow him. This wisdom, this warning is the psalmist's plea for all the nations to count the cost. With king going out to battle to encounter another king in war will not first sit down. And deliberate whether he's able to, with 10,000 men, meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he is unable to win, will he not send out a delegation and ask for terms of peace? This plea is to make peace. When he says be wise, be warned, this plea is to make peace. Make peace with the king you cannot defeat in a war that you cannot win. But how? How do you make peace? You make peace by surrendering to the one true king, to God's anointed, to Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Renouncing all that you have, your positions, your pride, your possessions, your claim to whatever authority you thought you had, surrender them. Renounce them. All the things you clung to as your God, the things that you served, the things you thought gave you identity, renounce them. And find all that you need in Christ. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling, says verse 11. 
until you've learned the fear of the Lord, you are lacking. You are destitute. You are starving for understanding. This is the one from whose mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Yes, be terrified. But this king, this terrifying king, invites you to join in the joyous ranks of righteousness. Service to Christ is not some grief-stricken labor. It's not some yoke too heavy to bear. He teaches us that we can rejoice since he, he himself, furnishes us with true gladness as we serve him humbly in faithful submission. One commentator said that fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption. God bids us not to be tormented, and we dare not presume upon the grace of our Lord, but rather he bids us to know him as he is to find refuge in him and to partake of the blessedness only found in Christ Jesus. When we take a look at the psalm as a whole, at its very core is a proclamation of the gospel. As we walk through it, we see just the open rebellion and sinfulness of man. And we see the utter transcendence of a holy and righteous God who we have offended. And likewise, we see the destruction that we justly deserve. Imminent. But the same king whom we rebelled against is the same king who offers us refuge. Christ himself, the same king who offered himself up for us, as we read, though he was crucified, God raised him from the dead, victorious, with all power in his hands, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The king that every knee will bow to. Would you not want to run to that king? Who says, I do not seek to destroy you. Take refuge in me. The same king who seeks to protect. To bless you beyond measure. The king who offers you true life and true joy 
the one who is so transcendent and yet so close. And he says, take refuge in me. There's no refuge from God. There's no refuge from his wrath. The only refuge we find is in Christ Jesus. I plead with you today, if you are not a Christian, there is no other day promise. You are here today. Call upon his name. Take refuge in Christ, the King who reigns. Let us pray.